So welcome to our Early Years Mental Health Conversations podcast with me, Kate Moxley, Kerry Payne, EYFS for me. And today we're delighted to be joined by Laura Henry Elaine, trainer, consultant, writer and creator of the characters Jojo and Grand Grand from the fabulous CBB series that um, has launched this year. So uh, welcome, Laura. Thank you for being here. And thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm delighted to, to be here and it's an honour to connect with you both. I think this is, the, although we've connected online, mm-hmm. this is the first time that I've, you know, had conversations with you both. So obviously I'm, I'm super excited that we are connecting. Likewise, definitely. I feel like I'm in the presence of a celebrity. That's why I'm a bit quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only Laura from the block, you know, um, Jay, Jennifer Lopez has got a song that says, I'm just Jenny from the block. So I'm just Laura from the block. <laughs> I'll try to keep that in mind. <laughs> well, it's just nice to be able to connect. I think this whole strange lockdown time has meant we've connected with people in all sorts of different ways, haven't we? And, um, you know, and again, we all work in early years doing a variety of different roles. And so, you know, we come across and we meet people, but actually like none of us have ever met in person. It's only by conversations or whatever. And sometimes you feel like you get to know people really well, but then you're like, I actually never even met you. So it's funny to be like, this is the first time we're actually all online meeting each other. So, so yeah, so we, we, um, as we've kind of already talked about, we have a podcast where we started off talking about mental health and and um, certainly, you know, over the last kind of a couple of weeks um, and the whole experience of lockdown has impacted people's mental health and well-being in all sorts of different ways. Um, and I suppose, um, you know, something that Kerry and I had been discussing kind of privately last week, I think, Laura, is something to, to say that privately we were exploring our feelings around the death of George Floyd and also then actually and then the movement of Black Lives Matter and understanding our pedagogy if you like our practice our ethos but also how we treat and and respect people in everyday life we were experiencing we were exploring that privately and felt it felt uncomfortable to both of us and we said oh this is never going to be a this could never be a podcast can you imagine because we it feels uncomfortable for lots of people and then when we kind of said that we were like no it must be a podcast and we we wanted to then explore you know and challenge our own understanding further and so you know obviously you know inviting you to speak with us when you have worked in the earlier sector for a really long time um you know so I suppose the big thing is, you know, thanking you, especially at this time, for joining us to talk about this issue, which feels very emotive for both of us. And I know even more so, um, and we can't fully even comprehend how difficult and upsetting and hurtful it must be for you. So we're, we're grateful for your time today to talk to us through this subject. And I suppose the first question we always ask um, on our podcast is, how are you feeling? So, you know, how are you feeling, Laura? Mixed emotions, to be fair, Kate. Um, Yeah, the whole weekend, normally I do have a break from work, even within lockdown. 
I've been writing. Um, I've got a couple of commission pieces that I was doing. And yesterday I decided to write an opinion piece for um, Nursery Realm, the Sector Press Journal. And one of the commission pieces, I misread what I was meant to have done. So I pinged it across at five o'clock yesterday. And the colleague came back to me and said, no, we meant X, Y, and Z. And I was just about to have my dinner <laughs> and to call one of my friends. And I thought, oh no, I need to rewrite it. But actually um, rewriting it in the framework that how she wanted it was better because I was able to, to um, speak my, coming at it from a personal point of view, if that made sense. And it actually links to what we're discussing today. Then I went to bed ridiculously late, later than normal, probably about one o'clock. <laughs> and then woke up naturally about half five and felt really exhausted and mindful I had these deadlines to ping across and because I'm dyslexic I get my queen of grammar another Kate to check it so she came back at nine and um, two three times a week my bestie and I we go out for power work two meters of course <laughs> and, um, so we did that and I delayed my best and I said, I need an extra 15 minutes because I've got to send this email because of this deadline. And she um, appreciated that and we had our power work for an hour and I'm so pleased I did that because I was going to cancel that. And I know you guys have probably had conversations about that, about self-care. And sometimes we're very quick to cancel our self-care because of other priorities and I think that's the real message that I'd like to get across to people that no matter how busy we are we've got to take time out and being with my bestie this morning this morning it grounded me and I think I I messaged Kate I think last week I was checking in on you Kate because I know your blog went out and just seeing how you were sort of like coping with this blog going out there and I said that um for me, although I have lots of friends in early years from my 30-year career, what's really good is the bulk of my friends are not in early years. No. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that, that answer went on and on. Apologies. Sorry. No, no. no. <laughs> mixed, mixed emotions for me, but I'm delighted to be connecting with you both to have this chat. Yeah, and I think what you said there, actually, I shared a quote the other day that when you think you're too busy for self-care, that's exactly the moment you need to practice self-care. And, you know, this whole situation, um, I think, intensifies feelings. It really, the highs and lows are higher and lower than they normally are. And, uh, but I think sometimes people think, oh, just because we're at home um, and we're not going out to work, then actually, you know, I, I'm doing less so I can cope with more. And the, the, the lines between work, rest and play and work-life balance have really gone out the window because we are, we're constantly talking, aren't we? And I think one of the things we talk about, Kerry, don't we, is that social media is now a place and a platform where we are constantly learning new stuff uh, it's it's you know i was thinking the other day you know is there any research into the impact on early years of social media and our professional development because you can't switch off from it you whether you use twitter instagram facebook linkedin whatever platform is your kind of comfort zone you can't help but be influenced by something you read and that happens on a sunday night on a friday night on a saturday morning so there's no drawing the line is there between that 
no i think you're right in in saying that that it is a bit like that and i think emma davis another one of our colleagues i think she's looking into that because she did a call to action last week on research to do with social media and i know that i think it's something that emma is is looking into and i think you're right in in saying that i did i've missed that i've come is that is that yeah, she's very very passionate about it um we, we've had like a lot of in-depth discussions around the kind of the the benefits of social media as professional development but also some of the drawbacks the kind of obviously um, trying to build connections and relationships and networking with others and then trying to actually process the amount of information i think sometimes you can fall into this trap of not feeling productive enough so you can see all these signposts and links to things they all become bookmarked but actually how do we work through that and, and transfer and apply to practice so um she's really invested in that as a as a research area interest wow well i think that um we'll have to perhaps chat with emma in the future because that kind of relates into kind of what you know um, what we're talking about I mean we've started off with the idea of one podcast and so far we've already come up with two different ones we're talking about uh, uh, we're, we're talking about all sorts of different things so um, so I suppose you know one of the things that Kerry and I were speaking about was was really trying to encourage the safe spaces for practitioners to learn and understand and challenge their thinking around diversity but specifically with regard to what's happening at the moment with regard to race and racism anti-racism um, and I think you know we've kind of been um, you know talking personally and privately um, and you know one of the things that I advocate all the time when I'm delivering mental health training is you know the only way you can ever truly get something wrong is by not doing anything at all and actually how many of us weren't doing anything at all because we thought what we were doing was good enough and because stuff felt uncomfortable and so I think you know we we want to encourage those um, conversations around race and especially within our roles within early years and I think I've suggested that maybe we do two podcasts because um, I think there's a, a really kind of big conversation around practitioners, um, educators, but also then around children and, and, and practice. Um, and so I suppose today it was really trying to um, have some initial conversations that would be comfortable for practitioners to begin those conversations. So our intentions are to just encourage those conversations i suppose is there anything you wanted to add kerry no i think you've kind of captured it that we we were really kind of acutely aware that that we don't want this to be a narrative that dies out and um, something that i always always talk about particularly because i obviously focus in SEND, but this real issue of tokenism and making sure that we don't all suddenly have this big rush of let's all do something and be active and then that dies down and becomes replaced by something else um, and I think that's what our, our interest was is we've grabbed hold of something here the important thing for us is to not let it go and um, but also to to I don't know how to word it um, diplomatically but you know you can see lots of people suddenly going right we need to act we need to be proactive but we don't suddenly want kind of the white superiority of of white people then patronizing black people and going we're here now we're here for it actually how how are we here for it in a meaningful way and not diminish people's experiences their long-term experiences because we're suddenly awakened by 
um, discussions around diversity. I hope that sounded the way I wanted it yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. I've got you, I've got you, I've got you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think absolutely you're right. And I think just to, um, to paraphrase both of you there, it's not about saying that, yes, there's so many emotions now that are going around because of the death of Floyd. And I think it's the reason why it's many people it's impacted on their emotions. I think it's to do with lockdown and then people have had more time to reflect on things because there have been other killings in the States and in the UK of black people, predominantly men, there's been women as well. And people are just saying enough's enough. And I think you're right in saying that Kerry, is not just use it for something to say, we're angry today. Last week we had Blackout Tuesday, where many, for the first time we had brands, we had companies mm. you know, blacking out their social media feeds, taking a stand against this. And I hope from this now, that we just don't have the protests that we saw at the weekend on a global level, and we have campaigns on social media, but this is an ongoing conversation that we have for change. Mm. And that's the only way. And the only way that we can do that is by having conversations and allowing people to, to share their stories. And I've got a, a quote that I say, if you, you know, in a nutshell, you share your story and you're, you're, you're telling your truth. And I think that's the best way that we can impact and inspire others is by sharing our own personal stories. And that's what I do when I train. I always tell stories, whether or not it's to do with practice or my own um, personal, personal stories. And I feel it's the time for us to come together within early years because we are at the bottom here of the education chain. And this is one of the things I said in the nursery world art um, opinion piece. It starts from here. We know from research, there's so much research around the world from academics that even babies can differentiate um, colour in people's faces. We know from children as young as um, two that they can come out with something. And I know myself on my travels, if I go into a predominantly um, white here, I've been into every nook and cranny in the UK and for my international work I'm, that's the first time maybe a child has seen a black person apart mm -hmm. from obviously the TV and naturally out of the mouth of babes sometimes they say oh you've got brown hands you've got a brown face and that's a child you know like the game show catchphrase they're saying what they're seeing yeah me, what rather than the educators and teachers feeling embarrassed and burying their heads in the sand, we need to empower those educators and teachers to use what that child has said as framing a conversation around that. You know, yes, Laura's got you know black hands, you know, etc., and using you know the resources that they have because as a teacher thinking, oh, a child's just what. Where can I go with this? And I think the oh, that's going to be the only way because it's a missed opportunity. We talk about, don't we, um, you know, teachable moments. Mm -hmm. Where are the teachable moments when we are talking about 
um, race and, and differences with the children that we work with on a data. And not just, I think, we shouldn't just be putting this on the shoulders of the educators and the teachers. We need to be coming back to the academics as well and those who deliver training because I'm sure that they may not even know. And we know that, you know, there's so much research out there, but where are the academics using their, their voice? And they could be in the same position as, as you guys, just thinking, okay, oh, I need to talk about this. I don't know. How am I going to inform myself? How am I going to get information out there to share with people who work directly with children and families? Yeah, I think that's, and, and what's really interesting about that, what you said about, um, you know, the role of academics, I was sharing with Kate yesterday that even on personal reflection, I have been teaching a rights of children module. And when I actually sat and, and truly reflected, I shied away from topics that I didn't feel that I had enough experience in. So, and when the students, so most of my students, um, I think 10% of the group are white. So there's a real diverse mix of students. When they submitted their assessments where they were given autonomy to choose a topic, they chose topics that related to their experiences and topics that I hadn't taught. And I thought, oh, what a disservice of yeah. me just completely overlooked that. Um, it was a massive learning curve for me to go. That was not right to shy away because I was fearful of talking about that as a, as a reality for children across the globe. So difficult. No, it is. And I, I, I suppose picking up on some of kind of your, your kind of points, Laura, is that, I, 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 well, and I suppose speaking from my perspective, not recognising that... I think I, I've, how I've spoken about it is I've kind of prided myself on thinking that, you know, I treat people equally, I, 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 that I'm not racist, you know, I know that I'm not. But actually what I understand now is, and what I've learned around white privilege and white superiority is because I'm not, I wasn't aware of that white privilege or understood what it meant. I couldn't unpick it and that meant I, I wasn't able to have uncomfortable conversations and so those uncomfortable conversations um, are being able to like you talked about oh you know Laura's skin and the children and so because you don't quite know what to say you don't say it and so but also because we're trying to you know say oh you know we're all the same well we want to treat people fairly and we want all people to have the same opportunity but practitioners I think and I can speak for myself you know I didn't I didn't know that actually color blindness was a thing I mean how ignorant naive stupid maybe do I sound but owning up to that that actually that has been part of my issue because I've wanted to treat everybody the same and actually I think so I know from the feedback from the blog so many people kind of felt the same of course I noticed that someone um you know is has, has got a different color skin but I've I've never I've never I suppose gone deeper into that relationship to have those conversations um, to challenge things that I felt uncomfortable. I don't know if I'm articulating myself properly. Well, I've got you, Kate. I've got you, Kate. <laughs> I think yeah. To, to paraphrase that, I think I would say don't do yourself a disservice. Don't say that you're you're stupid. You're ignorant. I think because 
you know, there's that lovely quote by Maya Angelou and I absolutely adore. So I would say to the listeners as well, if you've got the time and if you've got the funds, please read Maya Angelou's um, biographies. I think there's about four or five of them in the series. And I was fortunate enough to have been introduced to Maya when I did my NNEB 30 years ago. And she's got a lovely quote that says, when you know better, you do better. And I think that is, for me, a real headline act for for everybody now who's embracing, I knew this. And for me, even, you know, I've had 30 years in early years education, I'm learning all the time. You know, as we know, there's so many blogs, podcasts that we need to um, read up. There's new research that's coming out of the woodworks to do with early years education. You're thinking, oh, this is fascinating. Blogs that I wrote, you know, nine years ago, I look at them in embarrassment. I think, oh, did I write that nonsense? (laughs) You know, because obviously I didn't know. So now that I know, and as, you know, my mum says, every day is a day at school. So let's treat it like that. Let's use what happened to George Floyd as a, didn't know that now, as you're saying about white, um, white privilege. Let's use this to think, yes, um, what do I know now? How am I going to start making a difference? Absolutely. But I think picking up on your point, I'm re- I, I, I work really hard to not speak about myself in negative terms. But I, I'm also questioning how have I managed to learn all this in two weeks that I should have known years ago? So how long can we say that we were just ignorant? Or how long can we try to just say, oh, I didn't know about these things? How, how long is that kind of acceptable for? Um, I listened to the Brené Brown podcast with Ibrahim X. Kendi, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he said what he talked about in terms of racism, he said recognising the heartbeat historically of racism has been denial, um, has been to deny one's ideas, policies, oneself and one's nation as racist. And I suppose almost there is that whole denial of, well, I'm not racist and I know I'm not. So actually, but how much, how you know, further kind of move forward. And one of the things we've been exploring this week is to be anti-racist. And, you know, what does that mean? Um, You know, it's not just enough to believe oneself is not racist, but, you know, that, you know, anti-racism. And again, it it can't be a token gesture. You can't just suddenly wake up and become anti-racist. You know, it's not just a tick box. It's something that you is going to be uncomfortable to work towards, to use your voice, to challenge your thinking. Um, and I suppose, I suppose in kind of reading things that I've discovered is, you know, like, you know, um, and again, like we're talking about quotes and things like that, but, and I've mentioned this lady already, Layla F. Saad, her book on me and white supremacy. She talks about, you know, how have you managed not to know? Um, you know, why are you seeking out this information now? Um, and then she talks about making a list of why we don't know what to do. And that within that list will be our guide of, of what, uh, of, 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 of none of the stuff in that list will be comfortable, but that list will be the things that will be able to lead us to what we need to do. And it was about education. Um, you know, we don't talk about it with white people. Uh, we, we don't talk about racism with people of color. Uh, we feel guilty um, or maybe I just never cared enough. All of these things are things to explore and and discover. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good because actually I think 
we do need to signpost colleagues to reading material because it's about making people you know informed about their choices and I think before we started to record I, I was saying that you know it's not for us to be pointing the finger to say you know you've got to start learning this people will only learn when they're ready and when they feel that they want to to understand what's going on and the analogy that I would use that I think I I heard it on the TV it must have been that you know we can take a horse to water you can put the horse's head into that water but guess what the horse is going to drown and it's the same thing that we need to be thinking about and it is positive that you guys are on here because Jane Lane a you know a famous advocate she spoke for years and I've known Jane for over 20 years she's been talking about anti-racism within early years and you know Jane's quite elderly now and I think now is the time that we can really start embracing her work embracing the research that she did and one of the things that Jane always said to me on discussions we had and meetings we used to go to around anti-racism was you do need black and, and white people coming together to talk about this <laughs> because yeah. that's the only way so that's why it's really refreshing for both of you to be um, embracing anti-racism and I believe that it's not that what we had like for instance with British values that people stick a poster up or people go on a half day seminar a local authority puts on this course a trainer rocks up and people say I've done that now that's it and it hasn't changed their practice it needs to be continuous it needs to be ongoing dialogue with people reading researching conversations um, forums working parties department of education Ofsted the sector organizations coming together and I feel there needs to be some mandatory elements within the EYFS when we are, my colleague and friend Pran Patel talks about decolonizing the, the national curriculum, that we need to decolonize the, the EYFS mm -hmm. as a starting point, because there's many elements in the EYFS that are actually biased to um, children of color and also to your areas, um, Kerry, which I'm interested in as well from a personal point of view, special educational needs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think as well, um, what we obviously have addressed in this podcast loads is that we also need to move beyond this leaving your baggage at the door and actually disconnecting the personal um, experience from the professional and I think that that's a massive issue we have in early years is that we, we almost take away that opportunity for connection between colleagues and practitioners where they can come together and, and have those discussions because if everybody goes into, into the early years with the mindset of I have to drop part of myself to be able to carry out the role are we getting to see each other's vulnerabilities? Are we getting to share our lived experiences? And, and I think from a, a well-being perspective, that has, you can see the encouragement of it, but there's still something missing about letting people have an identity. And remember, I've shared this with Kate before, when I um, was a practitioner, I was continually getting um, warnings for not wearing uniform in the proper uniform or for trying to do something that where I wanted to express who I was as a person and I think that that is a there's a uniformed 
issue in the early years where we want everybody to look and act the same not allowing them to be individuals and for children themselves to connect with those different um, lived experiences from from different um, ethnicities cultures and religions and I was raised in Liverpool which was white I never saw many of ethnicities there was a, a racist culture I moved to London and suddenly I was like I don't know how to behave or how to act I don't know it, it was such a, a a weird and wonderful experience but it does it's like you said when you know better you do better but that transition did make me look back and go well actually when I was still in Liverpool I probably had behaviours myself that I would now question and um, we need to allow people to take ownership of their own errors and mistakes because those errors and mistakes have led to learning eventually so absolutely and use them as a as a learning point and as an action point in terms of behaviors that we have there's a presenter and for the life of me i cannot remember his name i know kate he's from your neck of the woods from Birmingham. is adrian charles that's the one. Oh yeah and many years ago he did a documentary i don't know if we can still it was either you could still get it online and he talked about actually that he doesn't have any black friends. It dawned on him that he doesn't have any friends of colour. So he had his own reflections in the documentary in terms of what difference it, it makes to him now as an, as an adult. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, Kerry, what you was just saying, being brought up. And I was brought up in, in, in London, you can tell by the accent, in it. <laughs> so for me, we had a very diverse community, you know, Notting Hill, a stone's throw away from Grenfell Tower where they had the, the awful fire. So I had friends from, you know, whose parents were from Ireland, from Portugal, from many different countries in Africa, from the Philippines. So I've always had that, that level of understanding of differences in terms of cultures, etc. But what the, the red note that I would put on that is just because you've got black friends or different friends from around the world it doesn't mean that um, you're not racist yeah. <laughs> but I think it does make a difference if you do um, if you mix with other people so now even my friendship group my friends are from around the world like my friend Rose is from um, Brazil I've got friends whose parents are from you know India different parts of Africa the, the Caribbean Irish etc so for me, um, I've always interacted, but I suppose if I chop down what I was just saying there, you know, we need to be reflecting on as educators, experts and academics, who do we have in our friendship groups? What does our friendship groups look like in terms of diversity? What am I learning? How can I reach out to others who don't look like me? Because it's when you reach out to others who don't look like you that's when you you learn more actually mm. about their their way of life and things that they they may have gone through um growing up in their communities absolutely it's really interesting just kind of hearing you speak and just having these just like natural conversations because i suppose for lots of us, they won't have felt natural before because we're always worried of saying, saying you know, the wrong thing. And I suppose, you know, what we, we hope is to, you know, continue these conversations. And I think some of the um, conversations I've been having with people since 
the blog went out last week, um, especially people of colour within the early years workforce, sharing their experiences of, um, you know, I suppose, unconscious bias, really, that runs through practice and really for practitioners to be able to address any of the things we've talked about. It's addressing what your, your bias is. It's addressing, um, you know, what is going on for you um, so that you can or what that means um, and so you know talking about you know within our workforce in terms of like leadership roles recruitment career progression um, and you know um, representation um, representation within the early years workforce um, you know just to, just those initial conversations from people kind of saying their experiences it makes you sit back and think gosh like uh, you know how how are we just waking up to this we've already talked about it it does feel like there's an awake an awakening people really want to do something and it's about making meaningful you know steps that lead to change um you know it starts with conversation but it leads to to, to more than that um you know it's bigger than us it, it's it's our it's our whole workforce uh, and, and also, our, you know, a whole human race, how we want to live, treat, respect, take care of each other. Absolutely. And I think it is, I think we are definitely this time more than ever. I think this is going to be embedded moving forward. And I hope that we do start seeing some systematic change with everybody on board and willing to, as you, you mentioned, Brené Brown, who I absolutely love. And I think to talk about this, you know, all three of us, you know, having this conversation, we are being vulnerable, you know, because we are sharing from our souls. We don't know how this podcast is going to be received, you know, so we are, we are putting our, you know, ourselves out there. And I would say to me, vulnerability is a good thing. I see it as a positive thing after, you know, my the work that I've read on vulnerability and I've studied it but I think also too with you guys doing this podcast it's about for me about the well-being how can we keep ourselves emotionally safe mm. having these conversations and um, making sure that we're going in the right direction to make positive change and the well-being that's why i think i you know i really appreciate you asking at the beginning of the podcast how am i feeling and that's i think what we do need to be doing when we start developing you know forums and groups discussing this we start with a feelings-based approach we start with that and we end with that acknowledging it may be uncomfortable people might say i'm scared i'm fearful i'm frightened you know or you know and people having a space where they can be honest and they can say you know what i have said some things in the past that were racist i've got family members i've shared you know videos that were racist before and it's not about i think making people feel guilty i never want anybody to come away thinking really bad about themselves but using it as a learning point to make changes yeah, and I think there's something in that around boundaries as well. Just coming back to, you know, you made that point of reflecting on whether, whether as an individual we may have discriminated or, you know, whether it's a micro discrimination. But I think one of the things that I've recognised, particularly over the last year, 
I've had like in-depth conversations with my husband about it is that we can't keep referring to things as casual well it's a casual racism or generation you can still you can still be polite and say I actually see it as just racism because if we call it casual we almost make it acceptable and I don't care that you know in-laws might be 75 I still I can still say if you want to say that say it in another room because I don't want to be or you know, challenge you've got to create that boundary for your own emotional safety you've got to i think you have got to outline whether you do find something unacceptable while still being able to maintain some form of relationship with people yeah and i think picking up on what you're both saying there for me what we talk about a lot with this um when we're talking about mental health and well-being and taking care of ourselves is what we've said so far it's very unique and different for everybody and actually some i've always been a sharer i always want to talk about stuff i always want to work it through i want to know how you're feeling i want to know how she's feeling and i want us to work it all out together and i've always been that way but not everyone's a sharer so i think picking up on what you're you're saying you know Laura we want to talk about this um, and we want to engage with people but not everyone's going to want to talk about it so some white people are just like actually no I don't want to talk about this right now people of colour they might be like okay I don't want to engage in this or talk about this now so sometimes we think by sharing oh it's really good it's really healthy this is all wonderful it's also being respectful and mindful of what our boundaries are what we want to share what we want to talk about because it's going to mean different things for everybody isn't it and so just like what's unique with regard to our mental health and how much we feel comfortable sharing we're not advocating everyone has got to suddenly start opening up and having conversations because you know vulnerability comes from i suppose when you open up you're, you're being authentic and honest and you know we, we talk a lot about being patronized and and not having authentic connections with people so you you know it, i suppose it's about respecting all of those things as well isn't it absolutely i think you're right in saying that and it comes back to the the horse analogy doesn't it about then people have to be ready to learn and I think there's, um, we can't do anything. And like you, I'm known as the, the queen of sharing <laughs> um, because I think it is, and that's how I am personally, I'm professional, it is about sharing, um, you know, with regards to um, what we know. And hopefully from that sharing, people can start having conversations, you know, when we're in this period of lockdown, managers and head teachers can have a space within their staff meetings as an agenda item for people to start talking about this. And I know when I showed your blog, Kate, on, I think it was Keeping Early Years Unique, a colleague said, thanks for sharing this, because yesterday I emailed my child's head teacher as well as my own head teacher, and they called me this morning. And that's a real positive that people are now saying, well, actually, and that's why I think we are at a real significant moment now in this time where real change can start happening so i'm as well as feeling my emotions are sad and, and angry on the other hand i'm feeling quite positive that we can start having these conversations to make change for the better yep definitely um and i think you know we could sit and chat about all sorts of things um, all day um, but you know we're mindful of of, um, of I suppose you know we can't and I suppose that that that's it isn't it you know this isn't 
something that can be quickly solved or ticked off. This is years and years of, uh, of, you know, of, you know, of racism, of, of awful things that uh, people of colour have endured. And so, you know, it's going to take years and years for, for real change to come. And we want that, we want meaningful acts, don't we? We want meaningful steps for change. Um, and I, I know, you know, one of the things that I've been we talked about books earlier and I've seen so, I mean, I've seen so many posts of books on Facebook, but children's books and books you can read. And sometimes it's, I don't share those posts because I think some people still believe, Oh, I've read this book or if I share this book, then, Oh, you know, if I put these books in the, in the book corner and, um, you know, I'm representing children that come into our setting and it's so much more than that. It's really digging much deeper, isn't it? Um, so much deeper um, and yes what we want to do is be able to signpost people to say oh I read this article and it challenged my thinking I read this and it, it made me reflect on an experience and I want to share that um, you know for, for, for someone else who's ready to listen for someone else who wants to do something about it um, so you mentioned Jane Lane before and I'd only discovered her name over the weekend as I was researching I discovered her book Young Children and Racial Justice uh, which I ordered on Amazon um, because it is trying to find out like what work has already been done by people before us what work is already happening how can we find that work and those people and connect and understand um, with things that are already in place to make change um, and so there's some fabulous work out there from Jane around uh, racial justice that she talks about some articles from Nursery World um, and so you know we want to perhaps try to put some of these together in places for people to be able to access. I think as well though it's really important what I've been reflecting on um, I saw a post on social media about let's not just be capturing oppression and talking about the difficulties that that um, different ethnicity space, we need to be looking at their actual celebration of their culture and the positive things. Like we don't want to give children an impression of, of just the oppression that, that people have faced. We want to also actually fully embrace the importance of culture. And I think that's something that stuck with me that to go beyond tokenism is to actually look at your group of children, to look at your cohort of children and think about how can I plan meaningful experiences? You know, I remember, I went on a consultancy visit a few years ago and I walked in and um, they'd set up a they'd set up a, a, a Japanese restaurant but for Chinese New Year <laughs> and it was that kind of and I, and I said do you have any Japanese children and do you have any Chinese children she went you know and I said where's the connection where is that link in learning and so we have to we have to put meaningful experiences in that yes acknowledge the the challenges and um, look at the adversity but we also need to celebrate it as well because I think we don't want to create a, a deficit narrative around um, around black culture around any any we need to look at the positives within that as well I think you're right in saying that and as you, you guys we can go on and on talking about this I think the final point for me what you've just said there is is really important that it's not just again the tokenistic thing that we reel out <laughs> You know, because, and years ago, when before I went over to Ofsted, local authority inspector, you know, settings used to pass round a black doll. And this was, that's a true fact. But it's not just about the dolls and the posters. And it's about having 
that's why, as you said, Kate, we've got to read these books. We've got to read literature by colleagues from like Jane Lane, Akel, all these other people to have that understanding and celebrating the positive. And, and for me there, um, just to drop this in about Jojo and Grand Grand, it's just a normal relationship between a, a grandmother and her daughter and it is positive. I love what the BBC have done with it. And that's what I want to see more. Yes, we do need to know about negative things that have happened. But we need to also to have that celebration to say, wow, isn't this, did you know that this, this black person did this, did that? We've got all these different books. We've got these, you know, TV series. So there is, there's so much, and you so rightly said, we can talk about this the whole day. <laughs> Well, I think I just I just wanted to pick up this point. I don't know if either of you have seen the video from Anthony Joshua, the boxer on, on Twitter. Yeah. And um, he he um, comes from Watford and he was out at the weekend peacefully protesting. I'm really saying, you know, to get our message heard, we need to keep our protest peaceful. And he said some really powerful things. But. But what I just then couldn't believe was happening was how they changed his narrative because he was talking about celebrating black culture, celebrating um, people who, you know, people's businesses, shops, you know, artists, self-employed um, people of colour who were saying support, you know, we can do more as a community. And some people have changed that narrative into him being racist. And I just was like whoa, how has this happened when he's using his voice to actually celebrate, like we've just talked about, uh, you know, people of colour and black people and their culture. And I just was like, I was just astounded to see how that was spun um, when he was doing something in such a positive way. Did anyone, did you see That happens quite a lot in terms of people changing the narrative. And when, especially when black celebrities do speak out, one of the things that's thrown back to them is that they're being racist. And it's that, I don't think people have really interpreted and listened what, because it was the same thing, it happened with Stormzy as well. Mm. Yes. To John, because of my dyslexia, I can't pronounce his, his surname, who's in Star Wars. Again, his narrative was changed. And people do that, I think, because they're fearful they're scared all of these emotions come out absolutely and i think it's for me it's under, it's understanding that white privilege to know that you've had that white privilege and i've just over the weekend read the peggy mcintosh article about the unpacking the invisible knapsack and she describes white privilege um it's an an um, an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. And I was like, wow, actually, if you, if you understand that, then you will understand Anthony Joshua's narrative. You will understand why our culture has been built on things that only, um, not, well, yeah, that only, I'm still getting comfortable with my language and terminology around this, um, that support white people and that's where the superiority comes from white supremacy all of these things that actually make people feel uncomfortable and so i think there's so much to be done isn't there, Absolutely. Is there you want to add there Kerry? 
No, I think you, you sums that up really well. My brain has got that thing at the moment <laughs> when I'm like, so many pieces of information, how do I process? I, I've got like a whole list of, of things to, to go and follow up myself. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that was, it was a really powerful conversation. I think it comes back to that, that concept of courageous leadership, actually stepping beyond our comfort zones, because the, the people that actually benefit eventually are the children. Yeah. A next generation, and we don't want to keep making the same mistakes over and over without learning. Absolutely. Um, so, um, thank you, Laura, for joining us and kind of just. I suppose you know almost just like really just scratching the surface um with this subject and, and beginning like conversations um it's been a pleasure to chat with you and perhaps in the future we can do um we can follow up with an, with another podcast or some further work on how we can reach um you know practitioners and really kind of encourage conversation for change Absolutely. And thank you both for, you know, for inviting me onto your, your podcast, which I think is well needed. Um, and also, too, I'd like to add, if anybody wants to reach out to me, you know, my direct messengers, private messengers, always open. You can email me. The best way I always say to people to contact me is via email, <laughs> because I know that I go back and look and because I'm dyslexic, my brain's all over the shop sometimes and I forget if it's a, a message to go back and have a look um, by email, I do definitely respond within a, a few hours. So again, you know, let's keep the conversations going. Um, we, unfortunately, we have to be uncomfortable to get comfortable. I said that in the Nursery World article. And, um, you know, keep the children at the centre because it is for them and their families that why we do what we do, mm. you know? Yeah. Absolutely, it really is. And so if people want to, um, you know, follow you, if they haven't um, kind of heard of your work before, they can find you on Twitter and Facebook. So Laura Henry Elaine and, um, and reach out to you. So I'll perhaps add your email somewhere for people if they want to kind of reach out and, 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 and do that. Exactly. So just as a quickie, is Laura at laurahenryconsultancy.com. Um, but you can add that for if, if any colleagues and I'm always like when you reached out to me last week and a few other people have as well they've sent me messages um, since last week and I'm always willing um, to have conversations to help and to signpost where need be wonderful thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you and um, look forward to um, you know I suppose connecting and continuing to learn in the future thanks Laura thanks Kerry awesome. take care